welcome to Tech Law Talks. I am Anthony Diana, a member of Reed Smith's Tech and Data Group. In each episode of this podcast, we will discuss cutting edge issues on technology, data, and the law. We will provide practical observations on a wide variety of technology and data topics to give you quick and actionable tips to address the issues you are dealing with every day. Hello, this is Anthony Diana from Reed Smith. Welcome to the next installment in our Tech Law Talks podcast series with our partners, Smarsh. Joining me today are Tiffany Magri from Smarsh and Therese Caparo from Reed Smith. The topic for today is what regulators, particularly financial regulators, are getting right and wrong on the electronic communications enforcement actions that we've been seeing. So let's jump right into it. As people know, over the past year or so, there's been some very high profile fines by the SEC and CFTC relating to the capture of electronic communications, which has caused definitely a lot of angst amongst a lot of financial institutions in terms of what does this mean? So I want to start with Tiffany. Let's talk about sort of the size and the scope of these enforcement actions, which have been obviously eye-popping to a lot of people. What do we think about that in terms of are the regulators getting that right? Yeah, so I think what the regulators did get right here is enforcing rules. These rules have been around for a long time. They they kind of seem to be flying under the radar. People, after looking at some through a lot of the different enforcement actions, it was it was a known issue. A lot of people knew that this was happening. It was happening across different levels of the organization, even from you know the the more administrative levels all the way up to compliance officers. People were using off-channel communications, and they were not capturing them appropriately. These communications are considered business communications and, and should be following the rules. So I think this was really a, an issue that had, had been hanging around for a while and hadn't been addressed. And, and they came in with a heavy hammer. The enforcement agencies, you know, they levied some of the largest fines we've ever seen, in particular around something like communications. And they've been very clear that they feel like the size of these fines was correct. The size of these fines was meant to say, hey, we're taking this seriously. We're going to be looking for these things. We know it's been an issue. We know people have not been following the rules. And it's, it's meant to be a deterrent. These large firms, you know, they're they're paying out hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's it's time for, you know, mid and smaller firms to really take a look at this and say, hey, this is a real issue. These people have been fined and we, you know, we're now forced into something that we maybe hadn't been doing before and should have been doing and really deter these types of behaviors from continuing. Therese, what do you think? Do they get this right? You know, I know there's debate on this, and there are some people that think the fines were too big and some that think the fines were too small. But, I mean, overall, I think they got it right. As Tiffany's saying, this was a known issue. It had been out there for the while. I think what frustrated the regulators the most was that they had given guidance in this area. There had been some smaller fines around off-channel communications that had been issued. They sent warning signs and the industry didn't move. There was no material changes in how people were addressing this, in part because people didn't know how, right? It's a tricky issue. And I think what the regulators would say is, you know, the fact that everyone is talking about this so much and is looking to figure out how they react to those fines and implement change would tell you that they got it right. If you define right by the regulators got the result they wanted, they got it right. But I'm going to push back a little bit. Like, like a lot of this was clearly people were using these apps, but it, this wasn't a situation when there's a lot of these fines that 
they found bad actors, right? It wasn't that this was a, a case of, oh my God, there was this massive manipulation and they were using off-camera communications, whatever, and it was tied to that. It seems more broad than that, right? It was just saying, you have to make sure you capture things. And I think particularly the size of the fines, and I would imagine particularly smaller investment advisors, maybe some broker dealers as well, right? They're smaller. Like this, this could like end it, right? From a reputational perspective, whatever. The big guys, we all know they can pay the big fines, but we know that there is a broader sweep now. Um, and I think there's a lot of concern that these fines, particularly if they're significant, could really have a huge impact on smaller ones that don't make as much money. So why don't you address that, Tiffany? Yeah, they do tend to give concessions to to smaller firms. At least, I I don't disagree with you that this this could be you know this could be a major game changer. Five hundred you know or fifty to hundred million dollars in fines is, is means a lot more to a smaller firm that may not have the resources to do a lot of these things. But there was some um, particular uh, guidance from I believe it was Fenner last year where they came out and that they were giving concessions to smaller firms. They are being fined less, quite a bit less. Their fines haven't necessarily expected to change year over year, where they are expecting to keep those fines significantly larger for men and larger size firms. So I think they are making some concessions. They do know a lot of times that smaller firms struggle with these things. And I think we'll see that the fines as they, you know, as we've seen the ripples and and the sweep exams and stuff continuing out to smaller firms and, you know, things like private equity and whatnot, we'll we'll see some of those fine numbers be a little bit lower. But I think those concessions are there, but I think they still they still have to enforce these rules. They still have to have some kind of you know guardrails in place for these types of communications that that were happening. And another interesting fact when I was reading through the enforcements is a lot of these were systematic failures. They wrote policies, they didn't follow policies, there was no follow-up, there was no supervision. So I think when you have these large standing, you know, we were talking about the rules came out in like 2010, 2011, right? This, that's a long time to go without following policies and procedures or having something in place. So I think it was fair that a lot of these were noted as systematic failures. They weren't they weren't small gaps in compliance. They weren't something they were missed. They were something they were kind of ignoring. Okay. Um, let's why don't we move on? So now let's talk about, you know, sort of and this is one of the areas that people are struggling with is what what can you do? Like, what are the steps that you would have to take so you don't get these fines, right? I think it's, like I said, it's, they weren't necessarily focused on bad actors doing things. It was just, I think as Tiffany, you said, it was sort of these systematic failures, but then everyone's out asking, well, then what am I supposed to do? Like, what is good enough? Because a lot of people did have policies, attestations, they had some of the stuff, like the pieces there, but they were still getting pretty big fines. So Therese, you know, do you think that regulators have been clear about what firms should be doing so that they don't get these fines? Look, I think in the area of, you know, what's good enough and what needs to be done to monitor and to surveil for, you know, violations of the communications rules, I think this is an area where the regulators have gotten it partially right, but maybe not right enough, right? So, look, one of the things they're saying is, right, you can't just say I have a policy and I have an attestation and, you know, we're monitoring messaging for, you know, our lexicons that look for words that refer to off-channel communications. What the regulators are saying is that is not good enough. And I think the reality is, is it's not good enough, right? Because most of, as Tiffany pointed out, most of these people have these kind of tools in place, but it wasn't resulting in, in in changes or at least compliance with the rules. So on the level of 
you know, these minimal standards aren't good enough. I think the regulators got it right. I think what they, you know, are getting wrong is there is a lack of clarity. You know, the financial industry is saying, what do you want from us? We'll do it, but tell you, tell us what you want because we don't know what is good enough. And we have been struggling with how to make sure that these rules are being implemented on areas that we have absolutely no control over, like an individual's personal account or personal phone. So what do you want us to do? And there hasn't been a lot of guidance or clarity coming out. And in part, the regulators are trying try to be, say, reasonable, but they try to be flexible in that not every organization has the same level of risk. Not every organization has to do the exact same thing. But they also are not saying, what are the other things that we think would be good enough? And I think that it's a struggle for the industry in trying to figure out what can actually be done, right? They're saying, do you want us to do spot checks of devices? Do you want us, do we have to interview every employee? Do What happens if we're just, can we rely on the word of our employees if they're telling us what they are and they are not doing? And I so I think that, you know, the regulators reference general things like you need to assess your surveillance program. You need to assess, you know, the capture of new technology. You need to look for improvements in your policies, but they tend to be pretty sparse on detail. And I think that this is an area where the financial industry is really trying to figure out how much is enough to satisfy the regulators without, you know, essentially going so far that either people, you know, they're having to spend outrageous sums of money on a process that frankly may not even actually stop the behavior to begin with. Um, or, you know, they're telling people you can't use anything at all and then trying to be as restrictive as possible and restricting the business. So I think that this is definitely an area where more guidance from the regulators would be helpful and more clarity would certainly be helpful. So Tiffany, I mean, I, I, I hear you and I think it, this is, I think, a, a huge area for a lot of firms because they don't know what to do um, when they read these things. Tiffany, what do you see? What are you seeing? Obviously, Smarsh has a lot more insight into the market as a whole, particularly smaller broker deals and investment advisors. What is what is their reaction and what, are you, what is Smarsh sort of advising them on on this issue? Sure, Anthony. So I think this is this is probably one of my favorite topics because I, I never really liked the, the phrase good enough. Right. Like is how often in our lives do we expect? Well, that's just good enough. Like, how can you take a more aggressive, proactive posture around your compliance policies and procedures to surveil for some of these things. And Therese raised some great points. We don't know exactly, you know, what all elements we can include in that, but you can take reasonable steps, just showing steps, documenting those steps, having things in your policies and procedures, as Therese mentioned, looking for those lexicon words, doing a little bit more insights into your communications that you have stored. That storage of communications has so much information in it. Having it at your fingertips and utilizing it is so important in this instance. Being able to look for those red flags, taking action on those red flags, and also having reasonable and very fair violation um, consequences to when these things do occur 
will make it a little bit more reasonable, right? They always like to say reasonable actions, reasonable when a regulator comes digging through them. You know, they really want to know, have you taken this seriously? What steps have you taken? And prove it. You need documentation. You need those, you need, you know, attestations and training and supervision. All these things become pieces of a puzzle that can really help you make those arguments when you're actually actually asked to produce those under audit. So I think there are steps we can take. I think looking at your, you know, we, we blog about this all the time, looking at some of those resources, go to those, get, get ideas, talk to other professionals. How are you handling this? What are you doing? I think that's going to continue over the next probably six months to a year as we see more of these fines coming out, you know, what steps could be taken. So keeping on top of those and trying to implement those into your own policies and procedures is going to be important here. And when we are going to do a separate podcast on what a compliance program and e-coms probably should look like, and we'll go in much more detail. But one thing I want to push back on, and that this is what I think concerns me, and I think I've heard this from a lot of people, is while it sounds like it's reasonable, like I said, these fines seem to be almost a strict liability issue, right? Which is if you're if you're if it's found that you're using off-channel communications, and again, it's not just off-channel channel communications. I think there's a lot of concerns about some of the guidance that FINRA has come out with, like polling and whiteboards. And we all know that there's lots of, and this is just the reality, technology is changing so fast. The way people communicate is, is changing so fast. And, you know, if you have this sort of strict liability regime, which says that if someone, you know, for broker dealers, investment advisor, whatever is communicating in some way that it's unclear what even an e-com is, that somehow you're going to get these huge fines. I think that is a concern. Um, and without the guidance, like strict, you know, clear guidance from the regulators, it's hard to know, like, what should we be doing? And I think I would love it if we were in a regime that it's reasonable and good faith would be, you know, out there. And not, it's not clear to me, based on these fines, whether the regulators care if you're acting in good faith or not. Like I said, it's not focused on necessarily bad actors. It seems to be you have to collect all of these e-coms and it's the foundation of the financial industry and all this kind of stuff. Like that language there is pretty harsh if you're trying to comply and you don't have all the resources you need. So Therese, what do you, what's your reaction to that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a bit of a misnomer to be focusing on, right, the bad actors or to even suggest that these fines were, you know, did not take into consideration level of violation or what was happening. Right. The reality is, is these were longstanding, long term behaviors in the industry, frankly, that were not being addressed. Right. You read those orders. They're talking about, you know, activities that have been going on for years with senior level people involved who should be enforcing the policy, who are violating the policy. So when we're talking about the size of the fines, I don't you know, and I think that in reality, there are times when I don't think they're saying if one person did one thing, we're going to find you a hundred million dollars. That's not what the fines are about. They are saying, as we talked about earlier, is that if you have systematic failures in your control structure and you're not enforcing your policies, there are going to be consequences for that. I mean, look, the rules don't say you only need to capture the e-coms of bad actors. Right. The rules say you need to capture, retain, surveil the e-coms in accordance with the rules. Right. The, because if you, you know, if we could only capture the comms of bad actors, then we wouldn't need, frankly, the e-coms rules because we would already know who they were. 
So I, I don't, I, I think that it is always true that if you can show, demonstrate compliance, if you can demonstrate enforcement, as Tiffany mentioned, if you can show you have a comprehensive program that you are implementing, that will be taken into consideration in any enforcement action. But I, you know, I still do agree that the lack of direction makes it difficult for organizations to really understand what is expected of them, even when they're trying their best to do the right thing. So Tiffany, one of the other issues that um, I think a lot of people are concerned about is it seems to be, you know, the theme of the fines or whatever is that somehow organizations should be able to control the use of off-channel communications and manage that on personal devices or even corporate devices, but even personal devices, right? Again, is that reasonable for regulators to say an organization should be able to control whether an employee is using, you know, off-channel communications for business purposes um, on a personal device? Yeah, I think this is one of the toughest things is we, you know, in a lot of these situations, people are using their personal devices, they're texting, they're using applications like WhatsApp to have those communications. And it's just so easy nowadays. And we've, you know, we've changed our communication behaviors, I guess, to really be more in tune to these types of communication. So I don't, I'm not sure it's even so much reasonable to say you can, you can prohibit these across the board anymore, right? You know, how do we enable employees to make sure that they can use these types of communications that we know that it's pretty much everyone's default. But I think to say that you can completely control it is, is probably unrealistic. I think you can set yourself up in ways that you need to be very clear with people in things like training in the policies and procedures. What is your expectations as an employee of this firm, as someone who has to follow these rules, you have to make sure that they really understand your personal device is for personal use only. If we are not allowing that for any type of business communication, it shouldn't be happening. If it happens, regulators are now asking people to turn over their personal cell phones for inspection. I don't think they're probably doing that without some indication that there was some type of violation that occurred, but we've seen it. It's happening. And a lot of people are very uncomfortable with that fact that, you know what, I may have to give over my personal device that includes all of my personal information. Well, if you don't want to do that and you don't want to find yourself in that situation, keep those communications separate. Find a way to containerize those communications and make sure that employees understand their obligations. And Therese, I mean, again, I think as as we know, a lot of a lot of our clients are really struggling with, you know, privacy concerns, and you know, particularly overseas, and whether they can actually do anything on this. Um, and there's obviously constitutional issues if the government is the one trying to you know grab people's phones. So, like, how how realistic is it that 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 you actually do have control? A firm does have control. Yeah, I mean, look. This is an area where I think the regulators don't get it um, oftentimes, right? Because there is an expectation, frankly, even an expectation in data protection regimes for financial institutions that you control business data. And even if that business data is in someone's personal phone, you somehow have the ability or the right to get it. And I think the reality is quite different. I mean, in, in truth, the, an organization doesn't have the ability to force someone to turn over their phone or to force them to give a password to a personal account. You can ask 
for cooperation. You can try to put it in agreements. But the reality is, is that once you do that, you are accessing and vast volumes of personal data to which the organization has no right, which can lead to, frankly, other liability issues um, and other types of concerns. And I think that this is where they're often between a rock and a hard place, right? We, we're expected to be able to get this data or to control it. Our ability, actual ability to do that is quite limited. It depends on, you know, in many ways, cooperation. You can say, well, get, you know, the employees their own counsel if you have concerns. But even for a large organization, that that is and becomes cost prohibitive very quickly. If you're saying in every case, in every instance, I'm just going to go hire them their own counsel so I don't have to touch the, touch the data, right? That may be appropriate in some circumstances, but I think this is an area where it is extremely difficult when you are talking about data outside of you know, firm controlled information on personal devices or personal applications. It, in reality, what can be done is quite limited, even when you have contractual provisions and the like. And, you know, it really is about the organizations trying to find the balance between, you know, what, you know, what they're being told in terms of their expected sort of omnipotent access and the reality of other legal regimes and other, you know, risks that, you know, are, you know, should be equally as important as, you know, the, the comms laws. And then I think sort of the final point that I wanted to raise and talk about is, the, the belief, it seems, that regulators have in legal and compliance having sort of magic technology that can say, oh, well, now we're going to capture WhatsApp, we're going to capture this, and it's just to push a button and the like. How realistic is that, that these communication channels can actually be captured and surveilled realistically, Therese? Okay, well, th- this is one, Anthony, where I think that, you know... <laughs> The reality and where the regulators would like us to be are two very different things. Um, in the ideal world, you know, legal and compliance would have insight into all new technology that's being used and whether there's communication features. Technology would be developed at a gradual pace that allowed time for, you know, the business need and the technology required to capture and to be able to surveil the new communications, you know, to coincide with one another. And, you know, I don't think that that's the reality of where we are. You, you know, you mentioned whiteboards and polling earlier and, and FINRA indicating that real-time whiteboards and polling may be communications in some instances. But the reality is that capturing real-time you know, communications such as whiteboards and real-time polling, you know, the technology is still getting up to speed to be able to do that. That's not to say that it won't happen. It's not to say that there shouldn't be investment in that. But, you know, the getting to that point in time takes time. And the speed of technology development and technology rollout that we're seeing now and the business demand, and not just demand from business clients, from consumers who have an expectation of, the, you know, their financial institutions making it easy on them, making communication easy, making their ability to, you know, be, you know, getting the information they need in a real time basis. They expect that as part of the services that make their lives easier and that give them the information that they need on a quicker basis. So but that technology is moving so quickly that technology development on the compliance side 
right, is lagging behind, right? Usually these technologies are developed for general use and then we adapt them for to meet with the compliance rules. And I think that firms are really struggling with this because it is happening so fast. They are doing what they can to keep up. They're doing what they can to invest in the technology, but none of those are quick or easy solutions. And while we understand that there are regulations that need to be you know, complied with, there is also a reality in terms of balancing you know, the ability to move the business forward in a reasonable way and in a way that meets you know, client expectations and needs, which is an obligation of the financial institution, um, and trying to keep up with you know, the requ- technology development that is required on the compliance side. So I think you know, this is an area where there's always going to be a little bit of a level of a disconnect, but I think it makes it incredibly difficult on the financial institutions to expect that you know all compliance technology will be 100% up to speed with technology development of you know business technology and communications technology I, and it's just not a realistic expectation. And Tiffany, I'll give you the final word here because I know Smarsh is on the forefront of this trying to you know frantically come up with technology and development to capture a lot of these e-com. So what is your perspective on this? No, I think Therese hit the nail on the head with a couple of those things. It is, it's very reactive as these new technologies are constantly rolling out, you know, by, by, by the hundreds sometimes with all the new communications and apps and whatnot. It, it's, it is very difficult to, to adjust um, technology fast enough to keep up with it. It really comes down to when you're looking at these things, having a really good look through the evaluation of, and evaluating the technology you're looking to use. I think the whiteboard and pollings is probably one of the best examples, as Therese mentioned. You know, we, we've seen for the past two Fenner priority level that those are, um, you know, video protocols are now hitting priorities, as well as the communications with the public uh, FAQ that Fenner put out talking about whiteboards and polling. So it is on their radar. They are looking at these things, but how do you handle it? You know, can you capture it? Can you turn it off if you can't? And when these technologies come out, a lot of times they make updates and you don't know about the updates until they're sitting in your, you know, in your teams and you're trying to figure out how, how do I address this? How do I handle it? Can I put a bandaid on this? You know, do I, do I call my, you know, my vendor and figure out is this something that I'm going to capture or not? So constantly staying on top of some of these new tools and how they're, you know, how they're being used by your firm is, is difficult. It's a major challenge. I think, I think it's unrealistic to um, expect that you're going to get it right 100% of the time. I think that firms are going to continue to see these um, technologies evolve and change. And you're really just going to have to have some type of procedure within your compliance department that can, you know, sort of try to mitigate these risks as they come in and, and find solutions for them, because I don't think this is going to go away. Yeah, agreed. This is a stressful time for legal and compliance departments in financial institutions. So um, thanks, everybody, for listening. As I said, we're going to have several podcasts. This is a part of a series. So we hope that you'll join us then. Thanks. Tech Law Talks is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's tech and data practice, please email techlawtalks at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com. 
and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.